Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Hebrews chapter 11, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along or simply to listen as we hear this from the word of God. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children, because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sands on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers here on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, whether because of my words or in spite of them, may your word be spoken among us this morning. Whether we come with willing ears or stubborn ones, help us to hear. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So to get to Bardstown, Kentucky from here, you're going to want to start out by going out the Lee Street exit because you cannot turn left here. You know this, right? Some of you seem to have forgotten. Go out the Lee Street exit. Turn left onto Dolphin, and then take a right onto the interstate. From there, it's pretty easy. Just stay in your lane for the next eight hours until you get to exit 81, where you'll get off and you will take, uh, you'll head east on Kentucky Highway 84. Follow that about seven miles, then take a left, then take a first exit on the roundabout, then take a right, then a left, then a right, then a left then another left, and then after about 100 feet, your destination will be on your right. And if you're not sure why you would want to do that, well, for one thing, there's always a chance that you'll meet Tim Jackson there. Those of you who remember Tim and love Tim from his time here at Dolphin Way will remember that, that just about every year, Tim would travel to the, re to the area of Bardstown, Kentucky, and there he would go spend some time at the, at Abbey, the Abbey of Gethsemane the oldest Trappist monastery in the United States of America. If you visit the Abbey today, you will be warm, warmly greeted, though mostly in silence, by the 40 or so monks who live there. That's about normal for Gethsemane Abbey. At different times, there have been fewer and there have been more. About 100 years ago, there were only a few more than that, maybe 70 in total. 
but for a few decades after World War II. That number grew to more than 270. As Gethsemane Abbey became famous all over the world and almost entirely because of one man, a monk and a priest named Thomas Merton. If you've ever read Merton's autobiography, The Seven Story Mountain, you, you can have some understanding of why his life and his witness were so compelling in a world that had been blown apart. It was trying to piece itself together after seeing the atrocities of Auschwitz and Nanjing, the fires of Dresden, and was learning to come to grips with a terrible new destructive power that just was in the world in the form of the atom bomb. Thomas Merton spent his entire adult life looking for God within his own heart and in his neighbor and trying to name the invisible but eternal treasures by which peace could be restored, one person at a time, in a world where so much that had been familiar and beloved and had seemed so permanent was now gone forever. The prayer that we prayed earlier comes from Thomas Merton's thoughts and solitude. And if it was the first time you've ever prayed it, then I expect some of you here must have felt what I have felt often when I have prayed those words. I bet you have felt as though Merton gave words to things that had otherwise left you speechless. To those moments when you have found yourself wondering what you could possibly do next. Or what you could even say next. Now that you've prayed that prayer and heard who it came from, maybe there's some small part of you that would not mind as soon as service ends, hopping in your car to go and sit in silence for a few days in Bardstown, Kentucky. But maybe you want to follow a little bit more specific instructions than the ones that I gave you. That is okay, I get it. I was a little bit vague. And I went a little fast. I may have left out a few details. My only defense is this, that I gave you more to go on than God gave to Abraham. Today in the book of Hebrews, we get to hear about Abraham. And I think it's worth noting that for the writer of Hebrews, Abraham's life and witness are as far in the past as the book of Hebrews is for us today. I think that's important because it is very easy for us when we hear someone's story from hundreds and hundreds of years after they've died, it is very easy for us to nod our head and say, yes, yes, obviously I get it. That is what happened. That is what must have happened. How could it have been any other way? It seems so obvious in retrospect. It's easy to listen to a story that we've heard over and over again, and it is easy for us to fill in all kinds of details that we know, but that the person we're talking about did not. So when we hear the author of Hebrews talk about Abraham, we automatically add in all kinds of details, like that this is the same father Abraham who had many sons, and many sons had father Abraham. We know nothing else about him. We probably know that song from vacation Bible school, or from a children's choir. Some of you know more of the details. You know about Lot and Melchizedek. You know about Ishmael and Isaac 
and Mount Moriah. And maybe you know that to this day, Jewish scholars and teachers believe that Mount Moriah is the same place that today we call the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And so maybe you have all kinds of history in mind that seems as though it is obvious and that Abraham set it all in motion. But I want to take you back to the very beginning, to 1,500 years or more before the book of Hebrews was even written, to the first time we meet Abraham in the Bible, before he is even called Abraham. In the book of Genesis, chapter 12, verse 1, where we read, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country. Go from your people. Go from your father's household to the land I will show you. Those are all the instructions that Abram got. Go to the land I will show you. And if you're thinking, well, that's just how it is when you're young and starting out, let's remember that Genesis makes a point of reminding us that Abraham was 75 years old when the Lord told him to pack it up and move out and keep going until the Lord just said, well, you'll get there when I say you're there. Imagine finding out at age 75 that you're just getting started. And you don't know where you're going. I got a phone call Friday. Someone I haven't talked to in years, deeply faithful man of God, devoted father to his kids. They're grown now. I knew them best when they were still living at home, but my friend called me because one of those kids is in deep trouble. My friend is trying to pull together as many people as possible. To help his kid's life get turned around, a friend just told me on Friday. We don't even know. Reminds me of a co-worker I remember from the first church I ever served. I was younger back then, the same age as her son. And somehow that prompted her to tell me, I had no idea I'd still be figuring out how to be a parent when my son was your age. Maybe for you, it's a relationship that ended. It has you feeling as though you're starting all over. You don't know where you're going. Maybe it's a career that took an unexpected left turn. Maybe you're having to leave a house or a neighborhood or a school that you thought was your forever home. Maybe it's a prayer that you were certain was going to be answered in a very particular way. At this particular moment. And then the moment came and went. And you realized you had no idea what comes next. Or even what to pray. I've mentioned before my old friend, Wilson Brent, a retired pastor who was already in his 80s when I met him. I used to see Wilson around town and I'd say, how are you doing? And he'd always answer the same way. He'd say, I'm not sure. I've never been this age before. And the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Go from your people. And go from your father's household to the land that I'll show you. So Abram went 
and Abram was 75 years old when he set out. In 1,500 years, more after that, the author of Hebrews is still telling that story and saying, that's what faith looks like. And then he goes on to remind us that Abraham was, quote, still living by faith when he died. He never received the things promised. He only saw them and welcomed them at a distance. He never received the things promised, but lived his whole life longing for a better country. A heavenly one. And that is what is said in Scripture of Abraham. And yet I think a lot of us would be ashamed if that was our obituary. Who here wants someone to stand up at your funeral and say, they never found what they were looking for? We live in a culture that prizes certainty. We live in a culture that idolizes the sort of person who makes their own dreams come true. We live in a world where the most important power in the world is willpower. And we believe that so fiercely that we forget it's a concept we inherit from Friedrich Nietzsche, the great despiser of Christianity, the man who worshipped only the will to power and would have had us do the same. We've been taught to be ashamed of anything less than such will to power. But Abraham did not know where he was going. By faith he lived as a stranger and put his hope in things he could not make happen. And Hebrews 11 tells us today that therefore God is not ashamed of him. Two weeks ago, prayed the Lord's Prayer so that we might know God and know our neighbors and know our own needs better. And last week we prayed in expectation like Rhoda and Susanna because we know that God desires our good. But today I want us also to remember that for all that we learn about prayer, for all the things that we can come to know through prayer, one of the most enduring gifts of prayer is that it gives us faith. And by definition, faith is an act of unknowing. It is the willingness to long for and to wait for and to look for things we cannot know. Faith is a peace that passes all understanding because it comes when we face what we cannot understand. C.S. Lewis once put it this way. He said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world we are waiting for the kingdom that we've only just begun to imagine. And faith is the willingness to live with this desire rather than drowning it or denying it or distracting ourselves from it. Because if you live your life only for what you can master, for what you can control, for what you can know and understand, then you will soon find yourself living in a smaller and smaller world until finally you are living only for yourself. And then most horrifying of all, you will discover that you don't really know yourself either. And then what will you live for? 
There were quite a few contradictions in Thomas Merton's life. When he joined the Trappist order of monks at Gethsemane, one of the things that attracted him to their way of life was that they were among the strictest and the most severe forms of monastic orders. The Trappists don't take a vow of total silence, but pretty close. They commit themselves to only using necessary words. That means they don't make small talk. They eat their meals in total silence. They've even invented a, uh, their own sign language so that they can express their needs without having to interrupt someone else's train of thought. So isn't it a bit odd? And isn't there a bit of a contradiction in the fact that Thomas Merton would join a community that does its best to live without words, and yet he spent every spare moment becoming one of the most prolific religious writers of the 20th century? He had so much to say. It wasn't the only contradiction in his life. Merton withdrew from the secular world, but also became a well-known activist for peace. He could not bring himself to cut himself off from what was happening in the world, even as he lived somewhat apart from it. He traveled more than some of his brothers in the monastery thought he should have, always with permission, but always at the very limit of what was appropriate for a monk. His writing became so popular that the Abbey of Gethsemane became so crowded that Thomas Burton wanted to leave the Abbey and he wanted to, to have a little quiet place on the grounds far apart where he could live entirely alone as a hermit. And he confessed this desire to a spiritual director, to, to one of his uh, spiritual gods one day, and his friend said, that's not what you really want. Instead, his friend said, what you want is to be a hermit in Times Square with a giant sign over you that says, look at the hermit. Is it any wonder that he found himself praying? I do not really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. Abraham hardly did any better than Thomas Merton. I mean, we think of Abraham as this great role model of constancy and confidence, someone whose faith never wavered, whatever we mean by that. But his story is full of moments when he panicked, when he tried to seize control of his own story, when he thought he knew how to make it turn out best. He knew how to accomplish what God had promised for him. And those moments in Abraham's life were always the moments that brought disaster into the life of Ishmael and Hagar, and Sarah, and many others. Abraham had to start all over again several times after he turned 75 years old. And yet, 1,500 years later, here he is in the book of Hebrews, being named in a roll call of figures so illustrious, the only name we have for this chapter is the Hall of Faith. 
And the faith that we remember is not the moments when Abraham was most bold and certain. The faith that God commends, the faith that makes the creator of the cosmos not ashamed to be known by the title of God of Abraham. The faith that we can find in our own prayers is the faith with which Abraham faced the unknown. It's the faith that he kept on nothing more than a promise and a hope. It's the faith that draws us to a God whom we can know by experience, but whom we can never figure out, never master, never contain within our own understanding. It's the faith that says, all I need to know is that you are ever with me. You will never leave me face my perils alone. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.